Let's see now. There we go. Oh, Victory Through Christ, part four. So you're in the right spot. Let's see what we have here. All righty. Well, tonight at your place, you have not a second copy of the study guide. You have something that I call an hour of power packet. And it is designed to give you the opportunity to have a conversation with God about your life and to claim victory in the struggles that you face. So remember, when I started this class, I told you, this class is not about the theory of deliverance. This is about the practice and the experience of deliverance, to actually see it in your life. That's why I'm going to take you through one of the steps in the Hour of Power to show you how you can walk with God and allow God to change your life for you. I want to help you to allow God to identify the critical issues in your life that are holding you back from having a full relationship with Him. And if we're going to do that, as we approach this, there's a couple of sort of, uh, what would you call it, preambles, foundations, first steps that I want you to take. We need to believe some truths about God and ourselves if we are going to actually see the victory that Christ has promised. And one of those is we need to understand our right and ability to use the name of Jesus Christ as well as to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when it says to use the name of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand what that means in modern language. They understood it in the Bible times to use the name of Jesus Christ. What that means to us is you are acting as Christ's representative. And you are acting as Christ's representative in a very unique capacity because you actually have Christ in you. When a king sends his ambassador to another country, the king isn't in the ambassador. When Christ sends us out into the world, Christ is within us. And his name is a name that is above all names. There is no lie. There is no sickness. There is no evil spirit that can stand against that name. There is no sickness that can stand against that name. There is no disease. There is no affliction. There is no emotional distress that can stand in the way of the name of Jesus Christ. Prayers are answered in that name. People are saved in that name. They're delivered in that name. And Jesus Christ has given you the right to use his name. What this is in our culture, we call this the power of attorney. The power of attorney is a legal phrase that means you have the right to act on behalf of another individual as if you were that individual. When my mother was getting older, I was given power of attorney over her affairs. That meant that when I signed a check to pay a bill, it was just as valid as if she had signed it herself. And that's what Christ has given to you. Using the name of Jesus Christ, God responds to your prayers the way he would respond to Jesus Christ's prayers. That's a comforting thought. Take a look at Colossians 3.17. It says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name or as the representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Now, I've seen people, they miss the point of this. I'm having pizza in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to get in my car in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to go running this afternoon in the name. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about living your life as Christ's representative. That when I do go in my car, when I encounter people, when I encounter situations, problems, opportunities, I stand there as Christ. 
And when you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus Christ was confronted by a lot of situations and circumstances. And it is an understatement to say that not all of them were favorable. And yet, was Jesus rattled? Not once. He never got rattled. It didn't matter what was going on around him. That's what we can have. The victory over the devil, over the world that he controls, and even over our own old nature has been won by Christ. We have to claim it, however, in our minds if we're going to see it. So how do we claim this victory? We can use the name of Jesus Christ. In what fashion are we going to use it? How are we going to do this? Well, I want to present this under a few different headings. How? That's not where I want to go. I think I need to go back one. Here's what we're going to do. If you're going to see God's deliverance in your life, you want God involved in that, right? This, isn't a, this is not a donkey cart you want to haul around on your own. You want God helping. So what you're going to do is you're going to allow God to show you the true issues in your life. Then once he does, you're going to deal with them. And he's going to tell you how to deal with them. And then you are going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, the adversary is so secretive and subtle that many times, in fact, most times, Christians do not understand the true causes of their struggles. All they know is that they're struggling. They need help. To understand what's keeping you back, you need God. God doesn't know exactly what's keeping you back and why. And he will reveal it to you if you'll ask him. To understand what's keeping us in prison, we need God's help, and he'll give it to us. The reason we need it is because we happen to have a tendency to think that everything we do is right. You ever notice that? Look at Proverbs 16.2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but God knows. Psalm 36.2 says, For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. This is a description of people as they view their own lives. We are not objective in looking in the mirror. We are not objective in understanding our own lives. God is. He's objective and he's loving. The solution is we ask God to show us. Look at Psalm 139. This is a prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Do you have the courage to pray that prayer? To really pray it? Say, God, it is all yours. Open my eyes so that I can be closer to you. God can show you whatever it is that you need to know in order to win. But God doesn't show you things so that you can just understand and cope. That is psychology. God is not after better coping skills. God is after deliverance. And if you get delivered, you don't need to cope anymore, right? God brings something to our attention so that we can be either warned about it or delivered from it. He can even show you how you got trapped in the first place if that is of benefit. Once God shows you the real issue, the true issue in your life, what you do immediately is deal with what God has shown you. So how are we going to deal with what God has shown us? 
We are going to confess any sin if that's what he shows us. We are going to forgive any wrongs that are against us if that's what he shows us. We're going to reject any lies that he shows us that we're believing. It's really pretty simple. God's ways are pretty easy. The third point now is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this is repentance. You know what repentance means? It means to change your mind, to change how you think, to change your viewpoint so that it aligns with God's viewpoint. We all have ideas, and we all think our ideas are right, but our ideas are right and true only if they agree with God's. We need to change our attitude about life in this world so that it conforms to God's word. So once God shows you where you've been trapped, you reject it completely and utterly. At times, God may lead you to break spiritual bonds in your life, or that might not be necessary. He might lead you to cast out evil spirits that are in your presence, or that might not be necessary. You allow him to show you. And The purpose of the hour of power is to help you claim your personal victory in Christ and to be able to walk in fellowship with God and his son. It is the practical application of James 4, 7. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, problems that people have in their lives, they're not so much problems Anger problems or sex problems, alcohol problems, bitterness problems. What it really all boils down to in one way, shape, or form, it is fellowship with God and identity with Christ. Are we on the same wavelength as God? Do we know who we are in the new birth? The principles behind the hour of power are from Scripture. And they're going to help you learn who you are in Christ and allow God to overcome what is holding you back. Take a look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. Fellowship, when God's Word is speaking of it, is an intimate and harmonious relationship with God. It brings joy. It says in Psalms, in His presence is fullness of joy. So in 1 John 1, 3, it says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's what God wants for you. He wants your joy to be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You know, sometimes people, they walk in darkness and they sort of know it, but I I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, but God knows my heart. When people say that, it is almost always a lame excuse to stay with some behavior that they really know God wants them to change. Fellowship with God is about lining up our heart with him because that's where we'll get the most blessed. Fellowship with God, by the way, is not about your new birth. It's not about your salvation. It's about the closeness of your relationship. I'm sure you've encountered people in your lives. They are in a family but they don't have a close relationship with that family. They might even have a very negative and 
anger-filled relationship with their family. Are they in the family? Yes. Is it a pleasant relationship? No. God wants fullness of joy in our relationship. We need to understand if we're on the same wavelength with God or not. See, it is never smart to disagree with God. It's just not. That is not a good way to go. And you have to ask God, do I have any unresolved issues with you? Because you might not exactly know what's going on. You know you struggle in areas, but you don't really understand what's going on. God does. Hey, I do this with my wife at times. You know, is there something I did? <laughs> did I say something stupid? Because I recognize that is ultimately and available for me to do that on a regular basis. And I might not know that, so you know what? I'll ask her. And, and she'll tell me. She seems to have a ready answer. We want to look at life the way God does. You know, sometimes people have, what do they call it, an elephant in the living room that nobody wants to talk about. Don't be like that with God. You don't have to tell me everything about your life, but don't hold back from him. Because he just wants to help. He has your best interest at heart, and he knows how to bring them to pass. Take a look at 1 John 1, 9. When we have areas that are out of sync with God, that is so simple to correct. So simple to correct. All you have to do is crawl on your knees to Jerusalem. No, you don't have to do that. Here it is in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is faithful to forgive us our sins. And you know what he says? It is just, it is right for God to forgive our sins. Now, why would it be right for God to forgive my sins? Because Jesus Christ carried them. That's why it is just, it is righteous This is a judicial term. It is the proper course of action for God to forgive your sins. That's what he wants to do. Sin or believing a lie damages the intimacy of our fellowship with God. Confession brings it right back immediately into play. We want to look at life the way God does. We want to look at sin the way God does. If we look at sin the way God does, you know what we do? We confess it and are cleansed. If we don't look at sin the way God does, then we wallow in condemnation. That's not a good thing to do. We want to look at forgiveness the way God does. And we're going to look at that in greater detail this evening. Now, this packet, the Hour of Power packet, is for you to use on your own. Or if you would like, you can use it. You can come and sit with me and we can go through it together. It contains everything you need to get started. And these principles can be applied by any Christian. You can follow it on your own, or as I said, if you prefer, I'm happy to sit with people. Don't let the adversary talk you out of getting help if you need it. Sometimes people struggle and they would just feel more comfortable to have a brother or sister in Christ sit with them as they go through and get deliverance. Because especially if the person has been struggling with spiritual issues or is really in a depth of emotional crisis, it can be helpful to sit with somebody else. But Everything you need is put in that packet. All the scriptures that you will need to understand how God works in this area are right there in front of you. But you need to come forward. If you read the Gospels and the book of Acts, you see lots of healings. Almost all of them 
were upon men and women who came forward for help. Jesus didn't go around Jerusalem banging on doors, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. No. As he went about his life, people knew who he was, they came to him. Now, there are times when God directed him to go to people, but they are in the minority. So don't let the devil talk you out of getting help. However God works on your heart, I want to encourage you to take the time. You are worth the time. And you know, I tell people, because if I sit with you to do this, it usually takes about six hours. I usually do it in two different, on two different days. It takes about six hours. You might think that's a long time. You are worth a long time. You are worth that much of my time. You are worth all of Christ's life. So you are certainly worth six hours of my time. So don't hold back if you feel you have a need. And I first prepared the hour of power to, for use with counseling because I don't do traditional counseling. I'm not looking to drill around in your life and see if you got bullied in third grade. I don't know. You know, Maybe you did get bullied in third grade, but that might not have anything to do with the issues you're facing today. God knows what has to do with the issues you're facing today. So that's why we let God sort this out for us. Uh, We allow God to address the issues that we want to confront. So when you go through this, I'm not asking you to remember things about your life, okay? I'm not asking you to search your memory. I'm asking you to pray and look to God and let him tell you. And I don't want you to be nervous about listening to God. Some of oh, well, you know, I don't know if I'd recognize his voice. Believe me, God has been talking to humans for a long time. He is well able to speak to you in a way that you can recognize and understand. You just have to be prepared. I did a teaching a few weeks ago on learning to recognize God's voice. It's easy. Take a look at Philippians 2.13. I like this from the New Living Translation. It says, for God is working in you right now as you sit here eating your refreshments at the table. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Have you, you know, something that I've noticed, you perhaps have noticed this, this as well. As you got into God's word, the things that you desired changed. And God works within us so that we desire his ways, and then he empowers us to complete his ways. What would be the good if he gave us the desires and not the power? That would be like the carrot in front of the donkey, you know, the carrot holding it out, the donkey can never quite get there. That wouldn't be very nice of God. No, he gives you the desires and the powers. And sometimes people are afraid they won't be able to recognize God working within them. If you will be quiet before Father and you will pray to him, he will speak to you in ways that you will recognize and understand. It might be as simple as something that you might call an impression. He might give you a a vision or an audible revelation. I don't know, but He knows the best way to communicate to you because he knows you better than yourself. God wants you to have victory. He wants you to get past all the things that are holding you back so that you can confess and renounce them. I know this personally. This, This is, again, this is not the theory of deliverance. I haven't just written a textbook. No, I have experienced God's deliverance. I'll tell you one way I did with the occult. When I was, this was, it must have been around 1970, and the book, The Exorcist, had just come out. Anybody ever heard or seen the movie, The Exorcist? Okay, the book obviously came out before the movie. I read the book. And you know what I did? You might think I'm a smart guy. 
you won't after this. I called out on the names of the spirits that were mentioned in that book. You look at it like, you're kidding, Bob. <laughs> yeah, no, I did that. And I was frozen to my bed. Like I had a, an anvil on my chest. I couldn't breathe. And this is before I got into word. I had no idea what was going on. Didn't stop me from being sick. You see, did I know what I was doing when I was calling out the names of those evil spirits? I didn't understand what I was doing. That didn't make any difference. It still opened the door against me. Eventually it released, and I got in the word very shortly after that. And the experience was never repeated. Never had that experience again. But you know what? Years later, as I was working on this material and seeing, you know, looking at the scriptures and the ways people get trapped, God brought to my mind that I had opened a door 40 years earlier at that time to the adversary, and I needed to close that door. And I did. It was very easy. Closing a door on the devil is easy because he's a defeated enemy. But, you see, people get trapped. I've seen people who've gotten trapped because of working innocently with Ouija boards or tarot cards. Oh, isn't this just a game we're playing with the kids? No. (laughs) Actually, it's not. And, you know, we have a young man who is in prison for murder right now. And shortly before that tragic event, here's what he did. He told me this, and he said I could share it with people. Ordinarily, I never share anything that a person tells me when I'm counseling them, but this young man wanted me to tell people because he wanted people to know what happened. And shortly before this incident, he had told the devil that he could bring it on. He was ready. The devil brought it on, and he wasn't ready because that's tempting God. Remember when, when the devil said to Jesus, jump off the pinnacle of the temple? Always angels will, will keep you up. Not if he had purposefully jumped off the temple. If he had tripped and fallen off the temple, I'm sure there would be angels there to carry him. But you don't test God like that. You only test God when he tells you to, which he did, as we saw earlier, with the tithe. But this young man said that, and the devil heard it, and he's in jail because of it. You know, the devil is... Uh, It's sobering that even when we do things innocently, they can still be used against us. That's why we need to know the scriptures. You know, of of all the healings that Jesus did when you read the Gospels, about 25% of them were casting out spirits. That's one quarter. And that doesn't even count the times that the apostles went out and cast out spirits. It doesn't count the times when it just says Jesus healed and cast out spirits. I'm just talking about of identified Healings and miracles, 25% of them had to do with evil spirits attacking and harassing people. Someone on the level of legion is rare. But harassment by the adversary is pretty common, and we need to understand how to deal with it. And in the hour of power, I take you through seven steps that are basically seven places the adversary hides snares to try and trap people. Not all of them will necessarily be something that you're dealing with right now, but go through all of them and allow God to simply teach and show you. And it's really like a home study course in walking in fellowship with God. And when you sit down and do the hour of power, what you receive by God is determined by you. 
God is available and ready with everything. It's really going to be determined by you. What will you choose to confess? What you choose to forsake? What you choose to forgive? What you choose to believe? We are responsible to do all these things. Then God does his job, which is he brings deliverance and joy. And the key in this is to be honest with God. Just to be honest with God. You know, people, they don't try to lie to God. I mean, we kind of, Christians especially, they recognize, well, that's not really all that smart. It's not that we try to lie to God. We just try not to deal with things God would want us to deal with. Remember we prayed that prayer, Psalm 139. Search me, O Lord, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. If you're serious, God will answer that prayer. You ever have somebody tell you, well, I don't want to talk about that right now. I don't want to talk about that. Okay, sometimes you do need to say that to people, okay? You never need to say it to God. If he wants to talk about something, that means now is the time to talk about it. Not later, now. Take a look at Psalm four, or Hebrews 4.16. We need to be open to God and allow him to lead us. You have nothing to lose coming before God. It says in verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And whenever you choose to pursue the hour of power, whether it's with me or by yourself, and if you're doing it by yourself, here's what I want to make a suggestion. Get in a quiet place. Turn off your phone. Set aside at least two hours to, go, to start going through this. You may need more, but set aside at least two hours, and you can keep going if you need more time, or you can come back to it the next day. But be in a quiet place with your Heavenly Father where you won't have distractions. Now, I want to take you through one of the steps of the hour of power. But before we do that, what I want to do is share communion with you. So this is not in the right order in your book. I think you'd have to go, we'll have to go to page 46. Why don't you go to page 46? I've basically got your same study guide, but with big print. <laughs> so communion, everybody's heard of it. The word communion, though, is not a common word in English anymore. And the word really means to share, means to share. We are going to be sharing in something with Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ set up a memorial, he wanted to remind us of what he was about to do. He didn't set up a memorial to the miracles and healings he had done. He didn't set up a memorial to the teachings that he had given in the Gospels. He set up a memorial to his sacrifice. And there's a real great reason for that. It is in his sacrifice that we have healing and forgiveness. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 10, 16. It says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing or a communion in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing? It's a, that's the word for communion in the body of Christ. Only older translations still use the word communion, which is interesting. Only old translations use the word communion, but all of us still call it communion no matter what church you go to. I want you to understand that we are sharing in the blood of Christ and sharing in the body of Christ and what that really means. Jesus Christ is the one who hung on the cross. 
we get to share the blessings of that sacrifice, and communion is the reminder of it. It reminds us of who we are in Christ, the new person we are in Christ. Don't think about who you were. Think about who you are, who Christ has made you to be. Now, the event of starting communion was done at the Last Supper. That's recorded in the Gospels. When he instituted this reminder, this remembrance, it was before he had hung on the cross. The full impact of our redemption is not found in the Gospels. The full impact of our redemption is found in the church epistles, which were written after the resurrection. So let's read 1 Corinthians 11 and see what God has shared and revealed about communion. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So, who did Paul receive it from? The Lord. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself informed Paul, who was not one of the twelve apostles. In fact, he spent his early career killing Christians. That does, that's not much of a resume to be an apostle. But the Lord appeared specifically to Paul. This is how important communion is. Jesus Christ himself showed up to show Paul what it's all about. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Not in the blood of goats and bulls and lambs. In my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To do it in remembrance, it means a reminder. We need reminding that we have forgiveness. We need reminding that we can be healed. Why? Because sometimes we get sick. We need to be reminded that Christ paid for that and we can be healed. Sometimes we fall short. And before we start condemning ourselves, we need to be reminded that, wait, I have forgiveness. That doesn't define me. That's not who I am. That's who I was. Communion does that. It is a reminder so that you can proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, what does that mean? Proclaim the Lord's death. Jesus died. All hail, Jesus died. That's not proclaiming his death. That's not what it's talking about. It's proclaiming the significance of his death. That it's for a new covenant. That you can receive forgiveness and healing. In the Old Testament, the exodus from slavery in Egypt, God directed Moses to have the children of Israel kill a lamb. And they were to take the blood of that lamb and put it over the doorpost. That protected them from the angel of death going around killing the firstborn of the Egyptian. And they were to eat the lamb, the body of the lamb, and that gave them physical strength and wholeness. Jesus Christ, his blood is the covering for all sin. His body paid the price for all sickness. Yours is not the one that will stump God. Christ gave us something very tangible to do this with, bread and wine. He took the most common things in their diet. Bread was eaten all the time, probably two or three times a day. Wine was safer to drink than water because wine has a little alcohol in it, which has a somewhat antiseptic effect. Their water wasn't always so clean. 
He took this and he gave it to us. It wasn't meant to be a sacrament. I want to encourage you to do it yourself. A sacrament is a sacred ritual performed by a priest or minister. Many churches still treat communion as a sacrament, that only the holy person, the priest, the minister, has the right to celebrate communion with people. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus said. He said, do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. That, I want to encourage you. Why don't you try this? Once a week, do communion. On your own, at home, or with your friends and family. Just do it. Thank God for his forgiveness and his healing. Take a look at 1 Peter 2.24. It says, He himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body. If he bore them, do you still have to bear them? No, you do not. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. So we're going to share communion tonight. You have it in front of you. If you would prefer grape juice to wine, that's the clear colored. But I want to help you receive the blessings that are promised in Christ. Some of you may be carrying scars from your past. We've, you know, and and let's face it, we know when we've screwed up in our past. Some people carry things like STDs. Some people carry burdens of guilt, burdens of shame in their life. Doesn't matter what the scar is. Often Christians understand that they've been forgiven. Okay, they get that. Okay, I've been forgiven. They don't get cleansed. They don't understand that they have been cleansed by Christ. And too often we view our lives that, okay, I'm a Christian now. This is great. I'm going to heaven. Christ in me, I got. But, you know, here I am still on earth. I've got to reap what I sowed. You ever hear that? You made your bed, now sleep in it? No, 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 no. That's not a verse of Scripture. You want to reap what Christ has sowed. He sowed righteousness. He sowed health. And when we are remind, to be reminded of that gets you to look to him so that, you can re, so that you can receive the forgiveness, actually accept it. You've been forgiven. Accept it. The price for your sickness has been paid. Thank God for washing your body clean. So let's take a, I'd like you first to take the bread, if you would. Just regular bread. That's all that, it was this leftover bread for the apostles. This represents all of your sickness laid on Christ. That's what it represents. All of it. Nothing that you have to bear. Don't be intimidated by sickness. Don't be intimidated by a doctor's diagnosis. Be encouraged by Christ. So, Father God, as we take this bread, I thank you that we can receive the healing that Christ paid for, that our bodies can be touched by your power, and that we can feel your strength coursing through us, God, and bringing us wholeness, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, God. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. Take the bread, please. I'd like you to take the wine, if you would. You know you've been forgiven. We've read enough verses about that. I want you to accept it. 
No buts about it. I've been forgiven. I've been cleansed. My past is over. It does not define me anymore. So, Father God, this is just so beautiful what you've given us. And I pray, Father, that we can always walk in light that we are forgiven and cleansed. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. I'd like you to take a moment now just to close your eyes and to praise God for his goodness in your life. Amen. Well, why don't you go back to the page you were at before. We're going to look at, before we take our break, we're going to look at the healing power of forgiveness. We saw the healing power of communion. That was God forgiving us. And you know, Jesus Christ said, freely you have received, freely give. You've received forgiveness. Aren't you blessed that God has forgiven you? There are things in our, I mean, I'm surprised God would forgive me of some of the things in my life. But he does. I have received forgiveness. I want to share with you how to offer forgiveness. Because withholding forgiveness is one of the chief schemes of the devil to keep you miserable. To keep you in bondage. Emotionally, physically, even spiritually at times. And this step on forgiveness, it's in the hour of power. For most people, it is the most uncomfortable step that they ever go through. And I have never encountered a person that didn't need to address something in this step with God. Other steps, they might not have needed. They're just learning as they go through it. This is fine, but this isn't me. Great. I've never encountered anyone who didn't need to forgive from their heart in some fashion. And the purpose of this step is to be free of the pain and bitterness of our past through the forgiveness of those who have hurt or afflicted us in some manner. Not even God will change your past, but God can set you free from it. And the way he does this, and the starting point for it is forgiveness. See, every attitude that you hold in your heart produces fruit. If you hold love in your heart, that produces fruit. But if you hold anger in your heart, if you hold resentment in your heart, that also bears fruit. And the fruit that it bears is bitterness. And bitterness is gangrene to your soul. It eats it away. When we refuse to forgive, we allow great access to Satan to afflict us. Because, let's face it, if you are an adult, you have been hurt by somebody. You are bearing the emotional scars and the pain of wounds that were inflicted by others. Those scars might not be easy for other people to see, but you know they're there. The wounds may have been caused by others, usually they are, but the bitterness is ours. And the bitterness throws salt on those wounds. And very few people understand how to get away from that. They don't understand They've never been taught that forgiveness is how we get past the hurt in our life. And when we refuse to forgive, we are living in direct opposition to God's will for our lives. Let me be blunt. 
If you refuse to forgive, that is sin. Because it's something that God has commanded us to do. Look in Colossians 3.13. You see, bitterness is very powerful. And bitterness isolates you. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another. Anybody ever experienced that? (laughs) Had a complaint against another? Here's what you do with that. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Did Jesus Christ hold back anything from you in forgiveness? No. It was blanket. It didn't matter what you did. It got forgiven. But we have a different standard in dealing with people many times. We have grades of sins against us. These ones I can forgive. These ones no man. Some people believe the lie that it is impossible to forgive. I've had people tell me, Bob, you do not understand how badly they hurt me. And they're right. I don't. I don't pretend to. But you know who does understand? Jesus Christ. His heavenly Father. They understand how much you hurt. They understand it more than you do. And they know that the way out of this pain is forgiveness. God cannot do your forgiving for you, but he will empower you to forgive with his love and grace. Hurts will come. You're going to get hurt in life. You've been hurt. You'll get hurt again. How much you suffer because you've been hurt is up to you. You are not, you can't, we have very little control over whether people will hurt us or not. But you have complete control over how much pain you endure because of it. And part of the reason we resist offering forgiveness is we don't understand what God is really asking of us. We don't know the biblical meaning of forgiveness. I talk about that in getting to know God better, that we need to know the biblical meaning of a word. People don't really understand what God is asking of them when he tells us to forgive. First of all, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgetting may be a byproduct of forgiveness, but forgetting is not forgiveness. If after you've forgiven someone, memories still give you pain, you know what you do? You pray about that. You ask God to take that. Forgiveness, by the way, is a choice. It's not an emotion. You don't wait until you feel like forgiving. You forgive because God commands it. Bitterness is the result of a choice. You know why you become bitter? Because you nurse anger and resentment. Nursing that anger and resentment was a choice. Now, the initial hurt, was that a choice? No. What you did with it afterwards was a choice. We are not so much in bondage to the traumas that we've experienced. We are in bondage to what we have done with our hearts and souls after that bondage. God can show you, by the way, if your bitterness is based on a real or imagined event. You know, since God requires us to forgive, it's something that we must be able to do. If God says to do it, you are empowered to do it. It would be nice if the person who hurt you would apologize. I wouldn't hold my breath. Many of them might not even know you're hurt. You're sitting there seething in anger and resentment, and they're completely oblivious that they've even hurt your feelings. In fact, many times I've encountered people who are hurt and bitter over an event that 
didn't really happen the way they seemed to remember it. That's a real tragedy. Also, many people, they're not so much offended by a sin that was against them. This is a slick one. We get hurt and offended and resentful because somebody didn't meet our expectations. Well, it's not my job to meet your expectations. But you see what? See how dangerous that is? I have this expectation on your life, which you know nothing about, by the way. And then when you don't meet it, now I really have a problem with you. And the devil just traps you in anger and resentment. Forgiveness, by the way, is not reconciliation. Reconciliation is good if you're talking about another Christian, but it's a different subject. I have it as an appendix to your hour of power. Forgiveness is not minimizing the offense against you. This is important to understand. It's not, I'm not asking you to say, oh, that didn't matter. That's not what, I'm, that's not what God is asking. If you, if you have hurt, it mattered. You wouldn't need forgiveness if it, didn't, if it truly didn't matter. So forgiveness is not minimizing the offense against you. What is forgiveness then? Well, there are two Greek words that are used to describe forgiveness. One is karitsomai. And karitsomai is from the word for grace. That's what forgiveness is. It is offering grace. And what is grace? It is undeserved. Some people, they don't want to withhold, they withhold forgiveness. They go, well, he doesn't deserve it. Yeah, I know. That's the point of grace. Did you deserve, did you deserve to have Jesus Christ hang on a tree for you? Did you deserve that? No, 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 no. If you des- and if you didn't deserve that, then let's get busy forgiving. The other more common word for forgive is to cancel or to let go. And it's really used in terms of debts. And that's why if you know the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, as we forgive our debtors in some translations. It is the language of debt that God is talking about. And the way, the vision, the analogy is that sin against you is like a debt that's owed. We still do this today. You ever hear somebody say, I'm going to get even? That's the language of debt. Meaning I'm below now, but I'm going to get even with him. No, 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 no. What forgiveness is, is canceling that debt. And when you cancel a debt, you write it off your books. When a bank cancels a debt, they stop going after you, right? If a court discharges a debt, nobody can collect it. You know, forgiveness, many times, because I counsel people on this a lot, it goes against their sense of justice. And, you know, it's interesting because when I make a mistake, what I want from you, Rick, is I want your understanding. But when somebody makes a mistake against me, I want justice. That's a little hypocritical. Wouldn't you say? Forgiveness is not excusing somebody else's behavior. Forgiveness does not mean you need to put up with further abuse. Forgiveness does not mean you need to stay in a situation that is harmful and damaging. It doesn't mean any of those things. It simply means you're cutting the debt and you're moving on. Even if you have to turn the person over to the authorities, you can still operate forgiveness the way God is talking about. Sometimes people withhold forgiveness in a mistaken belief that they are protecting themselves. 
Others, because the offender hasn't apologized. At times, people won't forgive because they don't think justice is served. Sometimes, and this is the saddest, people just want the supposed satisfaction of hating the wretch that hurt them. Let me tell you, that is a dark dungeon. That is no place to live. Declaring that you are hurting because of what they did, while it is true, offers no solution. Forgiveness offers the solution. Cancel the debt and move on. I've had people say that they need more time to forgive. I've had a number of people say, I need more time to forgive. What other sin do you ask for more time? You know, I'm, I'm going to stop stealing, Bob. I will. I'm really going to stop stealing. Two more banks and I'm out. You know, what other sin do we ask time for? When we ask for more time to forgive, we're just saying, God, I'm just not ready to do your word yet. That's a, let's just call it what it is. God, I don't want to do what you ask of me. And when you say it that way, you're going to like, well, I don't really want to say that. <laughs> That's not really what I want to say. So let's rethink. God, has God ever asked you to do something that is not in your best interests? Not once, ever. Nor is he ever going to. So if he's asking you to forgive someone who deeply wounded you, that is for your benefit. You're going to set the captive free only to find out that you were the captive. Forgiveness is allowing God to heal your wounds and then leaving justice to God. That's why forgiveness is about letting go and setting free. Look what it says in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When you are, you know, some people, well, I don't want to let him off the hook. Well, he's not off God's hook. God will call people to account. You don't have to. Forgiveness is God's way, and it needs to be our way as well. Your relationship to God, my relationship to God is based on forgiveness. And without forgiveness, you will ultimately destroy every relationship you are ever a part of. Because I guarantee you, any relationship you have, the other person is going to hurt you in some way, shape, or form. And by the way, most of the time when they do that, it was innocently. Because they did something boneheaded and they didn't know it. And you took a great hurt about it. But that's not always it. I'm not saying that some people don't have tremendous amounts of hurt in their lives that were inflicted purposefully. But, you know, people resent having to live with the consequences of another person's sin. Okay, well, here's a newsflash. You're living with that anyway. So the point is, are you going to live with it in bitterness? Or are you going to live with it in the freedom of forgiveness? This is the way that God is offering to us. Look what it says in Ephesians 4.31 about letting go of bitterness. See, if you don't forgive, then you are emotionally tied to the person that hurt you. That's no way to live. Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. And while you're at it, malice as well. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We are to forgive as God forgives. Now, how does God forgive? We know we've been cleansed, but how does God actually forgive? Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, 
and I will not remember your sins. Now, I've heard people say, well, God forgets our sins when he forgives them. Did it say that God forgets our sin? No, it says that God doesn't remember our sin. There is a difference. You are not in charge of what you forget. If I was in charge of what I forgot, I would have done much better in school. But I just managed to forget things. Forgetting is passive. Remembering is active. When you remember something, you are actively bringing it up before your mind. God will never actively bring up your past before his mind or before you. So if somebody is reminding you of your past, it isn't God because he doesn't remember it. He chooses not to. Now, God is all-knowing. He actually can't forget anything. But he chooses not to bring it up to his mind. And I do this with people all the time. I look at people and I simply refuse to look at them in light of their past mistakes. Am I ignorant of their past mistakes? Yes, in some cases. I simply refuse to look at them in that light. Because that's not how Jesus Christ looks at me. And I want to give the same to others. So, don't bring up a person's sin to them. And don't bring up a person's sin again in front of your own mind. Bitterness is toxic. It is toxic. I have encountered many believers, you might have too, many Christians. They have a grievance story. And you don't know them five minutes before they tell you, the oh, woe is me. Every time they do that, they relive it. Every time they do that, they're returning to the scene of the crime. Don't let someone from your past control your present. And you're going to need God's help with this. He's going to show you who you need to forgive, and he's going to help you forgive. Forgiveness is an issue between you and God. It's not an issue between you and the other person. So I'm not commissioning you to go out and find people to forgive. I'm going to have you, in a few moments, forgive people from your heart right here before God. Look what it says in Mark eleven twenty-five. It says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. When you stand praying, forgive. It doesn't say when you stand praying, go find the person. You're just before God. You're forgiving them in your heart in prayer. Sometimes those who have offended and hurt us are dead, or they've gone out of our lives, or they were unknown to us as in a crime. We can still let go of the hurt. We can still cancel the debt. Because love covers a multitude of sins. It covered your sins. It covers the sins against you as well. Don't sacrifice your life just because you've been wounded. Don't allow sin against you to become sin in you. Don't let your past hurt and destroy you. And don't allow your past pain to define you. Let God heal you. So we're going to do this. I gave you, there's there's one of these sheets in your uh, Hour of Power packet. There's also one of them in the uh, study guide as well. I want to do this. And what I'd like you to do is I don't separate yourself by at least one seat from somebody. So Danny, that means you move. And Linda can move. And then we're just going to have, I want want you separated a little bit. Because I just want you to be able to focus you and God, okay? Without thinking... They're looking over at my paper. And here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to look at you. 
why are you writing my name down there? (laughs) This is going to be a liberating time for you if you will allow God to do it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray together. And then you're going to look to God and ask him if there's anyone that you need to forgive, that you hold resentment against or hurt against. I don't want you searching your memory. I don't want you to log on, wait a second, back in fourth grade. No, ask God. God, is there anybody that you know that I still have resentment and bitterness in my heart towards? And any name he gives you, I want you to write it down. Any name that he gives you. And then once you've finished writing down any names that God might give you, and I don't care if you have one or or 30, then we're going to pray another prayer, releasing it to God, okay? So I want you to read this out loud with me, okay? The sample prayer at the start of forgiveness. Let's read this out together, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for your forgiveness. You have so freely given to me. I ask you to show me those to whom I need to extend the same forgiveness so that I may do so today and be free from all bitterness. I ask this in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, amen. Now, I want you to close your eyes. And I just, you just prayed. You just asked God. Now, as he brings names to your mind, I want you to write those down, okay? So you can open your eyes now. It'll make it easier to write.
Okay, now down toward the bottom you'll see there's a prayer there. And here's how I want you to do this. The first part you're going to do, be doing silently with each person uh, that you have on this list. And you notice I put thoughts against God on this list as well as yourself. Some people do need to forgive themselves. If that's you, forgive yourself. But here's how, what, what I want you to do. You'll go through, and you'll do this silently at where you're sitting. You know, Dear God, I forgive Joe for whatever it is that he did and for the pain it caused me. And then move on to the next thing. I forgive Ed for whatever it is that they did and the pain that it caused me. You repeat that for every person. And then when you finish doing that for every person, you can look up. And I want us to read the, the final part of that prayer together, okay? So why don't you do that now with each person on there? You're going to forgive them specifically and individually, not vaguely. That's why I have down there for what they did and how it made me feel so that you can let this go. Okay, why don't you all look at the last paragraph there that I have in the prayer that starts with, I release the pain. And I want us to do this out loud again because there's something about saying things out loud. It says to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Why do we have to confess it with our mouth? God can read our thoughts. Why does he say that? Not for his sake. For our sake. And I want you to read this out loud and mean it from your heart about those that you've just forgiven. Again, together. I release the pain and anger that has gripped me 
and I thank you for setting my soul free from the prison of bitterness. I choose not to hold these things against them any longer, and I let go of my resentment. I let go of my desire to be vindicated, and I cancel the debt they owe me, and I ask you to heal my heart and soul. I ask you to bless and deliver those who have sinned against me, and I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Last thing I want you to do is fold this paper in half and rip it up. We got a garbage can outside. Let's take a 10-minute break, okay? Nick. God's word fitly spoken on lips with believing can lift up the fallen and comfort the grieving. God's word can move mountains or minister eternal life to the hearer. Oh, what could be sweeter? God's word never God's word is more precious than silver or gold. It gives drink to the thirsty and hope to the weary. God's word has the power to still troubled waters, dispelling the darkness 
It heals and protects us in God's Word. God's word will move swiftly when we speak it boldly, proclaiming the power and the love of our Father. How beautiful are the feet of those who speak God's God's word fitly spoken on lips with believing can open the eyes of the blind and they'll see that the things of this world do not last they pass with the time but God's word it endureth forever and God's word never no God's word, it never, oh God's word, never fails. a time we all walked in darkness tossed to and fro by the winds that distressed us we walked without god and lived without hope in this world but god in his love god in his mercy he lifted us up when we were not worthy he saved us by grace and not of ourselves Praise his name, praise his name, for we are changed, we are changed, and it's Christ in you, I see Christ in you, no fear or doubt, just power and light. I see Christ. So be not conformed to the world and its ways, but be transformed by looking to God every day. When we walk in the Spirit, we live with the nature of Christ. Okay, let's see where we are. We should be around page 47, maybe? Page 45 was the sheet that we had us... And then I had communion next, and... Communion is the next page. Which we've done, so then 47. Yeah, my page numbers are different because my print's bigger, so... Uh, Do you want the section Our New Identity? Uh, Well, we're going to start... The first verse I'm going to be looking at is John 8.31, so wherever that is. Bottom of page 46. Okay, well, 
if we think back to the first session of this class, I outlined my purposes and my heart behind teaching it. And chief among them was to help you become a greater disciple of Jesus Christ. John 8.31 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. I want to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. A disciple is more than a follower or a student. A disciple is more than a fan. Yay, Jesus. A disciple is an apprentice, someone who wants to walk in the steps of Jesus Christ. And consider that when you look at John 14, 12. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. This is a promise that is large, almost beyond comprehension. But it, and it's a promise that's not even glimpsed by most Christians today. And could it be that Jesus was lying when he said this? I'm going to go with probably not on that. Could it be that we don't see this promise because we are not truly his disciples? Many Christians are, they're really good. They could be the president of the Jesus fan club. But a disciple is someone who endeavors to follow in the footsteps of his master. To become a disciple, you first, of course, have to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian gives you the enablements to be a disciple, but becoming a Christian does not make you a disciple. And I was considering this promise in John 14, 12, because I would like to see it more in my life. And God directed my heart in this. If, if I'm going to do the works of Jesus Christ... Study and see how he did those works. How, was, how did Jesus go about being Jesus? And if you look there, the answer to doing those works is going to be found. Philippians actually gives us a heads up on it. In Philippians 2.5, it says, You must have the same attitude that, Jesus, that Christ Jesus had. Have the same attitude. You know why we don't do the works of Jesus Christ? Is we don't think like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ thought of himself as the only begotten Son of God. That's how he thought of himself. That's how he viewed himself. You're a man or a woman with Christ in them. The Spirit of the eternal God lives in you. Are you conscious of that on a daily basis? This is who I am. We have been so accustomed to taking our identity from the world around us and what the world gives us and what we've achieved ourselves. We miss the identity that we have in Christ. And then we don't do the works of Christ. You know who I spend most of my time doing the works of? The works of Bob. I shall do the works of Bob. And not even greater works than the works of Bob. Just the works of Bob. I want to do the works of Christ. Look what it says. This is how, how did Jesus think? Okay, how did he think? Well, the Old Testament talked about it. And we're going to go there before we go to the New Testament. In Psalm 40, verse 7, it says, Then I said, speaking prophetically about the Messiah, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your word, your law is within my heart. Jesus delighted to do God's will. He didn't drag himself to God's will. Oh, it's my religious obligation. It wasn't a troublesome task to Jesus. The devil has sold the will of God as a troublesome task. 
That's slander against God. Jesus Christ did not pursue God's will when he had nothing better to do. (laughs) He pursued God's will all the time. Look at how he applied these verses from Psalms. It's in John chapter 5. We'll read verses 19 and 30. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, there he goes with his truly, truly again. Means it's important. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Truly, truly, this is important that you understand that Jesus wasn't able to be Jesus on his own. Jesus was able to be Jesus because he did what the Father showed him. You can do that too. Look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I am the apprentice of the one whose attitude it was to delight to do the will of God. We do that And we have an exciting life. Being a disciple is exciting. The devil has sold us this bill of goods that living for God is boring and somber. And we're always serious if we're going to live like God. No, not at all. If God wanted us to be serious all the time, why did he say a merry heart does good like a medicine? The way most Christians live, you think God said that, that a somber heart does good like a medicine, but it doesn't. I want to show you some people who missed out on being a disciple, who missed out on an exciting Christian life. You'll see that these people were legitimate fans of Jesus, but they were not disciples, and their life was not exciting. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Oh, really? Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This man liked the idea of following Jesus. But Jesus points out what's really involved. Many people enjoy the idea of following Jesus, but they shrink back from a life that requires faith. Jesus' mission, his particular mission, meant that he had no fixed abode or income and relied on God for everything. It takes no faith to live by your own wits. When you draw back from following Christ, you're able in some degree to manage the risk of your life, but your life is boring. You forfeit the excitement that could be yours as a disciple. This man, we hear no more about him. Then there's another in verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. Listen to this. Jesus Christ said, follow me. He said that to Peter, and what did Peter do? Followed him. He said that to James and John, and what did they do? They followed him. He said that to this guy, and let's see what he does. The response of Peter, James, and John, by the way, is sadly rare even among Christians, when Jesus Christ says, follow me. Look what this man said. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this sounds harsh to our ears. We don't understand the oriental customs behind it. To say, let the dead bury the dead is figurative. It means, 
Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Now, this man's father had not just died. If this man's father had just died, he would have been sitting Shiva in mourning, and he wouldn't be out following Jesus. The fact that this man was out following Jesus meant one of two things. First, he wanted to wait perhaps until his father died before making any real commitment. Or second, his father had recently died and he wanted to wait until the one-year period had ended when they took the body from the tomb and put it in, in a stone box that they called an ossuary. In this case, what the man was doing was placing other responsibilities ahead of following Christ. What did James and John do? They left their father in the fishing boat and went and followed Jesus. So who do we read about in, in the Bible? We read about James and John. And it doesn't say that their father starved to death after that. Take a look at verse 61. Think of what this man missed. No more is heard of this man. He missed out on the joys of following Jesus because he weighed it and said, you know, I just can't do that. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. I will follow you. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, listen to what this man said. I will follow you, but. That three-letter word is what keeps people from becoming a disciple of Christ, a true disciple of Christ. I would love to follow you, Jesus, but there are other things I would like to do first. Jesus isn't buying it. He sets the bar of discipleship high. To, to Jesus, being a disciple didn't mean you were a nice person. That's taken for granted if you follow Christ, you're a nice person. Being a disciple meant so much more than that. The cost is great, but the rewards are greater. You know, I, in my own life, I shudder to think of the times I put the word B-U-T in front of my service for God and Christ, that I have been too busy with my own affairs to pursue what God wanted me to do. And it's not that my own affairs were sinful. It wasn't like I was pursuing my drug dealing scheme in order before I would, you know, follow Jesus or just robbing banks instead of following Jesus. No, I wasn't doing anything sinful for the most part. I won't say I'd never do anything sinful because he who says without sin is a liar, right? And we read that verse. But the point is, is most of the things that keep you from being a disciple are not going to be sinful. They're just going to be distractions that seem important at the time but they pale in comparison to what you could be. Think of who you could be. I would love to be the man like the Apostle Paul, the man like Peter. You know, we laugh about Peter with his foot in his mouth, but he also walked on water. Look what it says in Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You are not going to miss out on anything following God. If I asked you, I would imagine all of you would say you are seeking the kingdom of God. I certainly am. But am I always seeking it first? That's really the question. No, usually we squeeze it in as best as we can. Just like the people in Luke. These people in Luke, they weren't bad people. 
They were Jews who recognized Jesus as the Messiah. That's a good thing. They weren't bad people. They weren't disciples either. They missed out on what what greatness it could have been. How about the people who were disciples, the, the 70 that Jesus sent out and commissioned to go heal the sick and cast out devils? Those were disciples that he commissioned to do that. Not people who had excuses. These people were fans of Jesus, but you're not going to see them doing the works of Jesus Christ because they didn't want to have the attitude of Christ. Now I want to show you the life of Paul. He is someone who went after doing the works of Jesus Christ and was serious about Jesus being Lord. He's relating his conversion on the road to Damascus. And in verse 6 of Acts 22, Paul says, And I was on my way and drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there it will be told all that is appointed you to do. This is the man I want to be. Paul's response to Jesus was, What do you want me to do? No excuses. What do you want me to do? Paul did not audition the word of Jesus Christ. He simply said, what shall I do? And then he was obedient to the vision. Paul did not try to get God on board with his agenda and his ideas. Paul adjusted himself to God. That's the way we do this. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me... And what is it? He's talking to people who are coming after him, right? Following him. But, so what is he saying? They're already following him. So what is he talking about? Really following me. If you want to truly be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now what does it mean to deny yourself? We're not talking about self-denial that you see so many times with athletes. That type of self-denial, denying yourself, is still selfish because you're doing it to pursue your own goal of winning. Jesus is inviting us to live life the way he lived it. He's letting you do that. Follow me, I'm letting you live life the way I am living my life. Jesus chose to make the will of the Father his will. To deny yourself, here's what it means, that you don't have a personal agenda for your life, that you're open to whatever God wants for your life. My agenda is what God wants for my life. Do you want to follow God His way, or do you want to try and follow God on your terms and at your convenience? That's the difference between being a disciple and a fan. People are Christians, but they live boring Christian lives where nothing, nothing exciting ever happens. What choices can you make today that will bring you closer to being a true disciple? Where can you more fully abide in his word? Jesus told a parable in John that I, re- I like to personalize. I want this to be me. John 15, verse 1. 
Jesus is speaking. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So Jesus is the vine. The picture, picture a grapevine. Jesus is the vine. God is the vineyard owner. And he's the one going through tending all the plants. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, Jesus Christ said, of mine own self, I can do nothing. As he saw the Father, he did. We are attached to Jesus Christ. We are the plants on the vine. A skilled vine dresser knows that you have to prune a vine to produce the maximum fruit. If you just want a big bushy thing of leaves, you don't have to do anything. But if you want to produce the maximum amount of grapes, you have to prune off branches and twigs that are not bearing fruit so that the plant puts all of its energy into the fruit. Look at your life. I look at my life. I put my energy into lots of things. But are they bearing fruit for God? So this is what God does. He prunes things that prevent you from bearing fruit. Many of these things in your life, if you've been a Christian for a while, he's not pruning sin necessarily. Okay, no more robbing banks, no more lying, no more stealing. That's not what he's pruning. Maybe that's what he first had to prune in my life when I first got in the Word. But those branches have been long pruned. Now he's pruning the things that are holding me back that may not be sinful in themselves. Have I just been too busy to be about God's business? Have I allowed distractions to pull me away from God? And they may not be sinful in and of themselves. I don't want to limit God in my life. I want to allow God to prune away what is keeping me from bearing fruit. And when we do that, then we really start to see and live like Christ. And we're going to close with looking at some of the rights and abilities and privileges, really, that we have as children of God. Look what it says in 1 John 3, 1. Just as a reminder, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that's exactly what we are. Being a child of God comes with a whole array of blessings, rights, and privileges. I'm only going to be covering a few, and I'm going to start with the armor of God. You're going to put on the armor of God. Where did you get that armor? From God. He gave it to you. This is, one of, this is among your rights and your privileges. He's given you this armor. Are you going to leave it here piled up on the floor or are you going to do something with it? And when you look at the armor of God, you'll see that the armor God has given you is Christ. And the armor of God, the components of the armor are really, for the most part, things that you have in Christ. Let's take a look. It says, put on the whole armor of God. You're going to need it. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to put on God's armor if we're going to win. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're putting our armor against. This is the devil and his legions. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Where do you get truth? From God. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You are righteous because of Christ. And put and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The important thing isn't the analogy of these components. The important thing is that you put on who you are in Christ. And this armor of God is only a part of what we have in Christ. I don't think anybody has actually made a definitive list. But once you understand the concept, you'll be able to read the New Testament and start to see things that you have because of Jesus Christ. Philemon chapter 1, verse 6. Look what it says here. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. Do you want to be effective in life? I do. How? Through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. There are things in you because of Jesus Christ. Are we going to put them on? Here are a few of the things that are true about you. They were not always true about you, but they became true about you the moment you were born again. The question isn't whether they're true. The question is whether you live like this. The question is whether you see yourself the way God sees you. You are God's child right now. Let's read these out loud together. These are, I put them all in the first person. This is who you are. I want you to hear yourself say this. I am God's child now. I am righteous in Christ. I am loved unconditionally by God. I have been redeemed and forgiven. I am free from any condemnation. I am no longer a sinner. I am now a saint. I am complete in Christ, lacking nothing. I am a citizen of heaven. I am seated with Christ and share in his authority. I am God's dwelling place. I can do all things through Christ. I am an ambassador for Christ. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And because of that, you have a victory. You have a victory through Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's given you the victory. I want you to enjoy it. It's time for us to claim what is rightfully ours because we want to believe everything that God says about. We have rights, privileges, and abilities as children of God. And you are who God says you are. You have what God says you have, and you can be what God says you can be. So I'm going to close this in prayer, okay? God, thank you for this time we've had together, and thank you for 
the victory that is ours through Christ. And I pray that you would bless each of us abundantly, that you would open our eyes to your love, to your goodness, to your power, to your truth, and that we can walk in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. You are the best.